Uh, all right, you ready? Yeah, let's go ahead. All right, one Carlos? There we go. If indeed it is one Carlos. Hello, everybody. I'm Kyle Brisdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this Monday, October the 16th. Happy start to your week. <laughs> we'll do some news. Uh, I should tell you we don't have any smiles because we're both a little cranky. Well, I'm cranky. I won't I won't speak for my partner here. Uh, oh, but, uh, a little cranky. Know, a little cranky. Yeah, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah, so we'll do some news, and then maybe we'll shoot the breeze on the back half. I don't even know. Uh, yeah, what do you got, sure. Kimberly Adams, news-wise? Um, I think it's really saying something that when there is a pro-business stance and the Wall Street Journal editorial board is like, nah, man, not, we're mm. not even on board. <laughs> so the Wall Street Journal editorial board has a piece uh, out. It actually came out yesterday, but it's about the real estate industry saying realtors face an antitrust reckoning. So federal trial starting this week, one of many cases that has been brought against the National Association of Realtors, basically arguing that the whole thing is a scam. <laughs> and with people who say there is no way that having the, you know, the realtors saying that you must pay X commission and that the seller has to pay the commission for the buyer and all these things and they have to be, you know, at 3% or whatever, that that is not anti-competitive practices. And then there are other legal cases talking about how, you know, they've tried to set up alternatives to the multiple listing services, which is what the National Association mm -hmm. of Realtors and, and official realtors use, this big database that having access to that database is sort of how they are able to say that members must follow the rules or you get fined or you get punished. And so there have been alternatives set up for this, but, um, you know, the accusations are that the National Association of Realtors will penalize people if they try to use those services, even if they are better. So lots of, uh, Complaints back and forth, but depending on the outcome of this case, it can could completely upend the way that real estate transactions work in this country because the fundamental argument is this idea that sellers should have to pay 6% of roughly of whatever the sale price mm -hmm. is so that each side's realtors get a commission is effectively anti-competitive and that if left to the open market and not for the National Association of Realtors, that there could be other systems that could save consumers money. And there's a couple of different cases um, that are coming up before the courts. Uh, this one, I believe, is with some Missouri and Illinois. I think this one is Missouri. Yeah. Missouri home sellers are arguing in a lawsuit that a rule requiring them to make a blanket officer offer of compensation to any potential buyer broker violates the Sherman Antitrust Act. Hmm. And I just want to skip to the end of this editorial, which just made me chuckle. So maybe there's my smile. This is the uh, <laughs> Wall Street editorial board. Hmm. We're no fans of most antitrust suits, but, but the evidence is strong that realtors' practices are classic antitrust violations that harm consumers. The realtors may own the U.S. Congress, but perhaps independent courts oh, won't be so intimidated. Wow. Yeah. 
And wow. what do they mean when they say the realtors may own the U.S. Congress? Well, I went to Open Secrets, which tracks money in politics, and the National Association of Realtors. So first of all, um, groups themselves like this usually cannot make uh, – organizations can't contribute direct, directly to the candidates and party committees, um, but – they can have affiliated funds or they can have members and all those other things. So Open Secrets kind of tracked sort of right. affiliated groups. Anyway, contributions uh, by the National Association of Realtors and their associates, um, $15,589,590 mm. in the 2022 cycle. Lobbying <laughs> Eight, more than $81 million in 2022. Outside spending, more than $14 million in 2022. And Open Secrets ranks where this spending sits relative to other interest groups in Washington mm -hmm, or mm -hmm, in the country. Mm -hmm. On contributions mm -hmm. to political parties and candidates, they're number 40 out of 31,955. Wow. Lobbying National Association of Realtors and their Associates Number one out of the 9,452. That right? right? Uh, That's yeah. so interesting. Wow. Well, it is because think about it. You know, realtors can be like the pillars of their communities mm -hmm. all over the countries. They're, you know, sponsoring yearbooks. They're running ads in local papers. Yep. They're yep. all over next door. They're organizing first-time homebuyer workshops. These are people that we know and most you know, that you've worked with and they can be your friends yep. and they'll send yep. you little calendars and things like that. And they have a lot of political power. It's sort of like car dealerships, right? You know, yeah, totally. you don't want to piss off the car dealers because they have a vast network all over the country. Look, I am not here to trash realtors. I'm not saying that realtors are by default bad or anything, but this is a system that has some pretty strong evidence that there are some anti-competitive practices at play here. And it has remained. And I remember a couple years ago, I did some reporting because I think the FTC was looking at it. And I know that there have been, I think in this Wall Street Journal editorial, they also talk about um, previous investigations. I don't know if it was a Department of Justice or another group, but it's definitely been investigated in the past. And the National Association of Realtors has um, a bunch of different resources on their own website for their members, as well as some public-facing uh, sources trying to encourage people to say, like, this is not how it works. It's not anti-competitive. And that by guaranteeing this sort of universal kind of flat fee it levels the playing field for everyone. Mm. One of the arguments they often use is that if not for this system, you'd end up with a lot of what are called pocket listings, where realtors right. or sellers only advertise to people they want to advertise to, which can contribute to discrimination and maybe not everyone having access to all of the homes available because right. a seller or a realtor would only offer a home to you know the people that they wanted to. And so, anywho, um, yeah, the Department of Justice um, had an agreement with the uh, National Association of Realtors in the past. So the Net Department of Justice is appealing because they didn't like the way that ruling went. Anyway, it's a big deal, and it could fundamentally change the way that real estate works in this country, depending on how this case shakes out. It's very interesting to look at what the realtors have to say, very interesting to hear what you know these plaintiffs have to say, and uh, to see sort of how money in politics can perpetuate the status quo. Yeah, that was a good find. That was a good find. I, I sort of saw it go by, but I didn't really click into it. So good for you. Mm. That's, hmm. Yeah, 6%, man. I remember, yeah. 
And if it doesn't, if it doesn't rankle listeners now, wait till you try to buy a house then or sell it. Well, I remember when I was buying my place, I kept trying to figure out, you know, how the incentive works. Like what possible incentive do you have to help me get the price of my home lower if that means you make less money? Right. Right. And, and I, it just never made sense to me. Um, but would I have been able at that point or would I have been willing at that point to pay out of pocket, say a flat fee for the services of someone to do all the things that a realtor did? And then what would that fee have been? And then does that just mean that if you have a ton of money, you get a better experience, you know? Mm hmm. I think it does. I think if you have a ton of money, of it doesn't course. Get better yeah, I'm just always, saying. but just <laughs> yeah. Okay. What's your uh, news? All right. So here's mine. It's a little dorky, but work with me because it is kind of important. It's from the Axios Macro newsletter this morning from Neil Irwin and Courtney Brown at Axios. Really, just sharp observers of the macro economy and and today of the of the nation's finances. I will just read it to you, and then I will discuss. It's talking about the rising effect, the effect of rising interest rates on the government and the government's fiscal picture. And as we know, the Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve has raised rates from zero to more than 5% in the past 18 months. What happens when the federal government borrows money is they borrow in various durations, right? Everything from one-month T-bills all the way to 30-year bonds, right? So they borrow on varying scales at varying durations. But what happens is that those bonds come due. And when those bonds come due, the federal government doesn't just reach into the Treasury Department and pay those bonds and retire them and call it a day. They can't do that because they don't have enough money. What they have to do is issue new bonds, take that money, pay off the old one, and then they have that new bond to service at the higher interest rate. So with that as background, here's what Axios pointed out this morning. Some $207 billion in Treasury notes matured this month alone, originally issued in 2021, 2020, 2018, 16, and 13. Here's the important part. Their weighted average interest rate was 1.2% according to Axios calculations. So across the whole uh, yield curve from one month to 30 years, if they weighted it out, the government was paying 1.2% to borrow money. Here comes bullet Mm -hmm. point number two. They will be replaced by newly issued debt in the ballpark of 5%. The same thing is on track to happen every month for years to come. So the federal government, as we know, doesn't retire its debt. It just keeps on borrowing because that's the way the Congress has decided to run our finances. The challenge, of course, is that until two years ago, the government and everybody else in this society could borrow for almost nothing. Now it costs you 5% and 5% is more than nothing. And when you're borrowing trillions of dollars... That really adds up. That's all I wanted to say. Uh, Crazy, right? So, you know, I've done all these stories about like what portion of federal spending is actually Mm -hmm. controlled by the appropriations Mm -hmm. process and how that compares to like the portion that we spend on interest on the national debt. And I'm visualizing that pie chart in my head right now and it's like exploding in one direction. And that is, that is not good. And I'm wondering what that's, go ahead. Go ahead. Interest on the federal debt this year is $660 billion, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, yes. For the coming fiscal year, it will be $850 billion. And not very long after that, it will be a trillion dollars a year just in interest and growing. 
Now, eventually rates are going to go back down and we will be the beneficiaries of the yield curve. But in the meanwhile, there's a freaking, there's a pig going through the boa constrictor that is higher interest rates that is costing the government a chunk of money. Yeah. There we go. Huh. There we go. Yeah, that's going to cause a lot of consequences. <sighs> yes. In a lot of yes. different places. I'm yes. just sort of right? totally. seeing all sorts totally. of bad things. Okie dokie. Right. Let's uh, go to a break and then we'll come up with something else to say. (laughs) Right. We'll come up with some kind of smile. Wait, no, we don't have to do a break. We're going to make... We don't have a break on the show. Juan Carlos, hit that that thing. Just just to change (laughs) the pace. Just to change the pace. Okay. All right. What else we got? We we got like three or four minutes to kill. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know what? Um, So I saw uh, this write-up. I want to say it was in Pointer, uh, a newsletter about journalism, Mm -hmm. about how on SNL this weekend, uh, Pete Davidson really struck a nice tone, just sort of acknowledging how hard of a week it's been and like just the awful, awful things that people have seen and experienced this week. And how sometimes you just have to turn to laughter to deal with traumatic situations. And it's jumped out at me because one of my friends um, organizes comedy shows here in D.C. Mm. and in the area, including the series called The Funny Arabs Comedy Show. And I know her from all the way back when I lived in Egypt. And now she's in the United States organizing all these comedy shows and they're they're doing great and they always sell out but it's called the funny arabs comedy show and you know she was telling me they were really torn as to whether or not they should even do their show that they had planned this saturday um and i had already planned to go cuz you know I want to support my friend and everything like that mm-hmm. and they went ahead and and did it and People were just there saying how important it was for them to be in a shared space where they could find a way to have some laughter, have some joy. And everybody acknowledged how rough it was and that this is a tough time. And, you know, there were some people, even performers, who were really struggling to get through their material because they were sad. But everybody was very grateful for the space. And I think that even in the darkest times, the fact that people can find a way to laugh is is something worth noting and acknowledging. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's a little bit like, uh, and I said this on September 11th, it's a little bit like the Jon Stewart show when they came mm. back, the Daily Show came back after September 11, 2001, which I mentioned because just to give Pete Davidson his street cred, his father was actually killed on September 11th. Yeah. He was a firefighter. Yeah. Um, and that's why Pete was, while on the face of it, you're like, Pete Davidson? But then you realize he knows what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there you go. I think that's as about yeah. as close to yep. a smile as yep. we're going to get today. Yep. And, uh, but tomorrow, shifting gears, uh, we are going to do our weekly deep dive. And um, on the, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at yet another wonderful, uplifting topic, which is climate change, but also climate solutions. Um, because we do try to focus on the solutions. That's why Marketplace has How We Survive. Shout out to Molly Wood and Amy Scott on that. Um, but we are going to look at some climate solutions, starting with nuclear energy. Um, we're going to talk about why it's getting a lot of buzz right now and some of the challenges to revitalizing the U.S.'s nuclear energy sector, concerns, and all the other jazz about it. 
So until we get to Tuesday, keep the questions and the comments coming. We're at makemesmart at marketplace.org. 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T is our phone number. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg. Secret Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Neil Farshabandi. Marissa Cabrera is our senior producer. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. And Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. <laughs>